Would you take your Bible and turn to the Gospel of John? John chapter 12. I'm going to be beginning reading in verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. When we think about the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we usually think about Jesus' death, this passage highlights, um, although before his death occurs, it highlights the reality of what Jesus came to do and where Jesus was going to the cross. But when we think about the gospel of Jesus Christ, we usually think about Jesus' death, which ultimately brings us life. It ultimately results in life for us as those who follow him. The word gospel means good news, and it's good news that the death of Jesus results in life for us. That is good news for us. But that's sort of the condensed version. And there are many times in Scripture where we sort of get these expanded details about the truth of the gospel. And this passage helps us to begin to see those expanded details, many of which, like the likes of Apostle Paul, are going to pick up on the rest of the New Testament. And they're like, put a stake in and say, these are the important elements of the gospel. Things that we need to regularly and consistently uh, make or call to mind. So before we dive in in this passage, this is an interesting, and this is sort of like a, this is not the passage we typically think about when we think about John's gospel. And in fact, you, as we were reading through it, maybe you're like, oh, I kind of forgot this was here in John's gospel. To have these Greeks come and seek Jesus, and then to have this voice from heaven speaking. And, and oftentimes we read this passage and sort of see it as a bridge from Palm Sunday, so sort of some of the more, uh, some of the more potent teachings of Jesus and his disciples that are going to uh, be revealed to us beginning in chapter 13, prior to, prior to the cross. But So before we dive in here, there are just a couple things to familiarize ourselves with what's happening in these, in these verses. 
And there's almost two bookends in this passage, two bookends on the front end and then on the back end, sort of holding it all here together. And on the front end, John tells us that some Greeks come to see Jesus. We see this right in verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Philip meets them. One of the disciples meets them. Then he confers with Andrew, and then they go and tell Jesus. Now, rarely in the account of Jesus' life do we have a situation where someone comes to see Jesus, but Jesus doesn't explicitly receive them. He doesn't say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk to you now and address you now. This, this would seem to be one of those exceptions in Jesus' life. Jesus, uh, does Jesus not receive those uh, who come to him? And the answer is, yes, he does. But for some reason, uh, these Greeks, uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't speak to them directly. They imply, this, the text, John, the author, implies that Jesus just launches into this conversation with his disciples and some of those who were within earshot. Uh, and doesn't address the Greeks specifically. Maybe the Greeks were within earshot, maybe not, we don't know. Either way, Jesus doesn't engage them explicitly here. That seems a little strange, and, it, and it's worth, worth noting for us, and that, that represents one bookend of this passage. The other bookend, sort of on our bookshelf here, when we're looking at this passage, is that Jesus is talking about his death. Jesus is talking about what kind of death that he is going to die, and then what kind of death he is going to die. If you look in verse 32, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. When he says, I am lifted up from the earth, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. He was going to be lifted up on a cross. He was going to be executed publicly before many people. Many people were going to bear witness to the fact that he was executed publicly and that he would be lifted up from the earth. And he says that when he is lifted up from the earth, he will draw all people to himself. Notice that Jesus says that he, upon his death, he will draw all people to himself. Remember when, when we see those two words, all people, especially in John's gospel, we need to be thinking all types of people, all kinds of people. All people groups will be drawn to. Jesus, not just Jews, but Greeks, including these others that have come to see Jesus as well. Jesus' sacrifice will be effective for all people groups for all of time. So why does that matter? Why do I want to point out those two bookends? On the front end, the Greeks come to seek Jesus. Jesus doesn't address them specifically um, and doesn't necessarily receive them or, or whatever it is that they've come to, to ask Jesus. And then on the back side, we see Jesus talking about his death. Why does it matter that these verses start with some Greek seeking Jesus and end with Jesus talking about his death? I think that there are two reasons. Two reasons for us to think about the start and the finish of this passage. First, Jesus' death will be the event by which, I just said this a moment ago, but Jesus' death will be the event by which those Greeks will be able to come to Jesus. So in the Old Testament, prior to Jesus' time, non-Jewish people would have had to come to the nation of Israel. They would have had to convert to Judaism to become part of God's people. But something is changing here. Something is shifting in the New Testament. 
Jesus' death will effectively open up or make it so that no such conversion would be necessary to Judaism. This is what Paul combats in, say, the book of Galatians, where there are Judaizers who want uh, the people, the Gentile Christians, to follow in Jewish traditions in order that uh, they might be, be part of God's people. But Paul says that's not necessary. What is necessary is to come to Jesus. What is necessary for salvation, these Greeks included, could come directly to Jesus and receive the free gift of salvation. So that's the first thing. Jesus' death will be the event by which the Greeks will be able to come to Jesus. The second thing, though, is that Jesus' death is, seems pretty stupid to these Greeks. It's folly. It's folly to the Greeks. We're not told about the motivation for the Greeks coming to Jesus here, but, but the, in the ancient world, uh, John's readers in particular would have known a few things about Greeks. In Greek, in, in Greek culture, um, ideas and conversation about those ideas would have been a very common pastime. It would have been sort of the thing that you do. Like in our culture, you may go shoot some hoops or play around a golf or do woodworking or something like that. But for the Greeks, it was having ideas and developing those ideas and thinking about those ideas. They were very much uh, uh, a group of people who were fixated on learning, fixated on understanding the world around them and developing philosophical ideas uh, to explain what's going on in the world. So this would have been an equally common pastime. So just to get the mention of the Greeks here probably would have uh, raised some ideas in the minds of John's readers that these guys were coming to sort of add to their thought repertoire. Here's Jesus, someone who's made quite a stir here in Jerusalem and in the surrounding region. Here's a guy who seems to have a growing following. And so let's come from a distance and see what he's saying. Let's think about the ideas that maybe we can learn something. Maybe we can add to our own, our own uh, idea bank. They weren't necessarily coming to him so that they might receive him by faith. I think that's implied here in the text. So Jesus, what Jesus does here at the end of this passage is to bring up his death. Because again, that would have seemed pretty stupid to these Greeks. It would have seemed like folly. And Paul picks up that idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In verses 21 through 24, he writes, For since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. What's the folly of what what you preached, Paul? Um, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but here's the folly. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. The folly of what Paul preached was that Jesus, the God-man, the leader, this thought leader who was making his rounds and causing quite a stir in the ancient Middle East, was going to die. Was going to die. The death of Jesus would not have been wisdom, according to the Greeks, but foolishness. A God, a God who can die. That, that seems silly, and it probably seems silly to a lot of people in our 
culture as well. We're not entirely that different. That idea would have been preposterous to these Greeks who would have come to Jesus. And it would have been even more preposterous would be that Jesus would die, not just die, like in his sleep in, in isolation, but that he would die a public, gruesome, brutal death on the cross, publicly executed for all to see. So again, the question we ask, why does it matter that these verses start with some Greeks seeking Jesus? And why does it matter that it ends with Jesus talking about the death? Because it is because the death that Jesus would die, despite being folly to Greek thought, would be the very way in which Jesus would achieve salvation for all people, including these Greeks. It's almost ironic. It's almost an irony here that Jesus, these men would have rejected the idea of a public uh, execution of the man claiming to be God, but through that event would be their salvation as well. So we have these two bookends. I want you to keep those in your mind's eye as we, as we think about the rest of this passage. And I really want to see what's between them and kind of what's right in the middle, right at the heart of those two bookends. Allow your, my, your, your, your eye to be drawn right into the middle in verse 26 in particular. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So anchor yourself there. Allow your eye to be drawn right to the middle there. Start in verse 20. We go through verse 33 right in the middle, verse 26. We're going to focus our time and think more uh, intensely about what Jesus says here, given the setting. The first thing that I want you to see, and again, we're going to sort of talk about around verse 26, but we're going to move into verse 26. The first thing I want you to see is that death is a fundamental gospel detail. Now that shouldn't come as a surprise to you because of what I said right out of the gate. Because the reality is that Jesus's death ultimately results in our life for those who follow Jesus, who repent of our sin and believe in the name of Jesus, the death of Jesus ultimately results in our life. The gospel says that even though we are sinful, and because of our sins, separated from a holy God, Jesus came into the world to die in our place as a sacrificial substitute uh, so that um, we might be brought back into God's family. Now, even that's a very condensed gospel statement. The good news, the gospel, we can't really just reduce it to one thing. So I think, I think something that we've done in modern evangelicalism, which is, has been harmful, is try to reduce the gospel into a quick presentation in order that we might tell as many people as possible. Now, the, these things aren't, aren't uh, in, inherently, uh, inherently problematic. But when we start to think of the gospel as a one-sentence burst, we're missing a lot of what is happening in Scripture. Because the weight of the problem of our sin, the weight of the problem of our sinfulness that we inherited from our father Adam, is, can't be captured in one simple statement. This is a lifetime, or it needs to be a lifetime of pursuit of understanding who we are through God's word. 
The gospel, we're never done with it because the gospel continues. There's so much depth. It's so rich and it continues to astonish us and amaze us. And it should until our dying day. We would never say, and it probably will for all of eternity, we will never say that we've arrived at a perfect understanding of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Or when I say perfect, I mean complete understanding of what God has done for us in Jesus. Jesus Christ. And so sometimes what we do is we condense the gospel to a one simple sentence and then say, well, I know the gospel. Well, yes, you understand some of the basic details of the gospel, but in order to receive it by faith means to live a life uh, that is wholly dedicated to understanding the good news, the weight of our problem, the majesty of the solution. And those two things can't really be seen in a quick glance at a summary statement. But we need to mine those things through a prolonged reading and study of God's word and a life of intentional application of God's word as well. Those details come to the fore when we dedicate ourselves to a life of intentional application of God's word. John, right here in the front row, I'm going to quote him. And I don't know, this may not be original to you, but he said one time to me, he said, we need to preach the whole gospel, uh, all 66 books of it. All 66 books, everything that's contained within God's word is, I'm sorry to put you on the spot, but I think um, all, every, every detail that's communicated through scripture is, is designed to show us who God is and the majesty of his, um, of his work and the fact that we, we're separated from him because of, because of our sin and it's over and over and over and over and over again, on and on and on and deeper and deeper it goes that our understanding grows. The same idea applies here. Just a few verses in John 12, aren't these few verses in John 12 aren't going to give us a fully formed, full-fledged view of the gospel. But again, there are some very important details that we need to internalize as we continue to pursue God and could pursue what he has done for us in his word. So, this is the lead. So I said, uh, death as a fundamental detail of the gospel, which is not something that should be surprising to you. But this is at least, I would say, the least popular element of the gospel. When we start talking about the details of the gospel, this is the least possible component of the gospel, death. Uh, not because we can't just like cognitively believe that it's part of it, but because when we actually start to get to the nitty-gritty of what it means, uh, it has some really uncomfortable application for us. So Jesus here, though, the, shows us that the, right at the end, in verse 33 of this passage, that uh, he foreshadows the cross. And it's the culmination of these verses. The cross is the culmination of these verses. Gruesome, brutal, public. Everybody sees the, the execution of Jesus. It's out there. He's bloody, he's bruised, there's fluid pouring in the a crown of thorns. The whole thing is disgusting. And I think many of us, if we were actually there and looking at this event taking place, we would, we would physically vomit because that's the, uh, the type of death that Jesus dies. And so this is a component of the gospel that is easily understood in our minds, but not necessarily internalized just how gruesome and brutal it is. It is death in the, in the way that we don't want to think about it. We already don't like to think about death a little bit because we say, 
we kind of push it aside and we sort of ignore it and we pretend like we're not getting older and catapulting towards physical death in this life. But, but this, this, the cross represents death in the way that we never want to think about it in our world. Never want to think about it in our world. Jesus starts out by talking here. If we go back just a few verses from verse 26, Jesus starts about talking about a seed or a grain of wheat, he says, falling to the earth. And he says that the seed or the grain of wheat, it dies and it is alone. It's alone. But its death leads to new life and huge amounts of fruit. So he's talking about himself here. He's talking about the reality that he is essentially going to die alone. Those closest to him are going to betray him. They're going to run from him. They're not going to be next to him. He's going to die and he's going to do it alone. But through his death, salvation would be achieved for all peoples, for all of time. Anyone who comes, repents, and believes in the name of Jesus will be saved. Huge amounts of fruit come apart, come from the death of Jesus. Huge amounts of fruit will be born from the seed that falls to the ground. Its death leads to something significant. A seed is such a small thing, and it may seem like Jesus has gained quite a following, but even the people who would witness Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and everything that Jesus did on the earth was a relatively small number of people compared to everyone who has ever lived on the face of, face of the earth. But the fruit goes backwards. It goes forwards. It goes to the people who, were, who witnessed it, and it comes to us 2,000 years after these events. And then we get verse 25. Who... Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. We've heard this before. If you cling to this life, and you, if you act like it's all there is, you will inherit eternal death. If you cling to this life, acting like this is all there is, you will inherit eternal death. But if you're willing to lay down your life, this life, die to self and self-interest, even to the point of physical death, which many Christians have suffered, clinging to Jesus at all costs because he is life, you will have eternal life. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Following Jesus means clinging to this life very loosely and holding onto Jesus very tightly. Let me say that again. Following Jesus means holding this life very loosely and holding on to Jesus very tightly. Now that idea is going to sort of grow as we look more uh, at verse, our anchor verse, verse 26 here. Verse 26 does need some special attention. And so I want to say that the next thing that we need to consider is, the fo- is following Jesus, what that looks like, and the stops that come along the way. Following Jesus and the stops along the way. If we've received and begin to understand the reality that death is a fundamental component of the gospel and not just one that we can understand cognitively, but one that is really, honestly, very gruesome and brutal, then we need to think about what Jesus says in verse twenty. Six, following Jesus and the stops along the way. So Jesus starts out in verse 
26. Look at verse 26. Right, the first thing he says, if anyone serves me. If anyone serves me. Now for this, we have to think back to the passage we considered last week, the, the third and final section, uh, which were the events of Palm Sunday. Now last Sunday wasn't Palm Sunday, but, um, but it was the passage that we looked at last week. And so the events of Palm Sunday, we saw people running to Jesus. We saw him, them cheering for Jesus. We saw them wanting to put a crown on his head. The, the people saw Jesus as their king. And that would, if they said, this is our king here, that would make them his servants. That would make them subject to him. So if you live in a monarchy, we don't. So this is sometimes hard to conceptualize. But if we live in a monarchy and there's a king over you, you live to serve that king. You don't get to vote for a new guy every four years or ever. Um, He's the guy, he's the dude, and you're subject to him. You're his servant. So these people shouting Hosanna understood the implications of making him their king. They understood that they were devoting themselves and submitting themselves to a life of service to this guy, to that guy, their whole life, their whole life. Everything that they would say, everything that they would do from this point forward was in service to King Jesus. What does it look like, though? Because this is where they sort of don't understand yet fully what Jesus' kingship looks like. What does it look like to be subject in the kingdom in which Jesus is king? What does it mean to serve Jesus? What does it mean to serve him as king? What were the people in the crowd actually saying by calling Jesus king? So that's why verse 26 is so important because it clarifies that question. What were they saying when they said, Jesus, we want you to be our king. We want to serve you as king. Jesus says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And to be Jesus' servant, to be his subject, means to follow him. And you, I, and you just, okay, I'm good with that, right? Well, I like to follow Jesus. That's, that's, what I, that's how I describe myself. I describe myself as a follower of Jesus, you might say. Oh, that, that sounds pr- pretty good. That's common language we use. but here's what Jesus says next. And we kind of have to squash that thought because nice is, is sort of the wrong adjective. It is actually definitely without question, the wrong adjective because of what Jesus says next. He says, where I am, there will my servant be also. Okay. What's tough about that? Well, we, when we get to go where Jesus goes, he's with God at the Father's right hand right now in heaven, we get to go there too, right? And the answer is, yes, there will be his servants, but yes, well, it's not a direct path. It's not just boom here, boom there, done. There's a lot more to this. And Jesus had a lot more in view when he said, when he said, 
he must follow me and where I am, there will my servant be also. Because from this point to the point where Jesus gets to the Father's right hand, there's a few stops that he makes. And we have to make those too as we follow Jesus. So, there's four. Or I'm, there's four we're going to talk about. Four stops we must make as we follow Jesus. The first stop is this. The first stop is this. Public execution. Now, I'm not talking about like literally public execution in, in physically, although that may be what we're talking about. There are many men and women who have lost their lives in service to King Jesus and have lost their lives in gruesome public ways. But here's what Jesus, I think, has in mind when he, when he says, where I am, there will my servant be also. If we want to be subjects in Jesus' kingdom, then we have to prepare to die a death like his. We need to be prepared to die a death like his. We, we must die, brothers and sisters, we must die a public death. Again, maybe not physical, but we'd have to die openly, courageously, preparedly to the things of the world. It must be evident that you are dead to the things of this world. Our lives need to give bold, courageous, clear evidence that this world does not hold value for us any longer. Because Jesus frees us from this, this world. He frees us from the anxiety we might be feeling as things continue to get tighter in the face of inflation. Jesus frees us from endlessly needing to upgrade our material stuff or lamenting over losses in this world. Our lives need to give bold, courageous, and clear evidence that this world does not hold value for us any longer. There's just many, many folks in this room have taken a beating recently just, just because there are many things that are going on in our community, in our world at large. Lots of trials, suffering, uncertainty. But here's the thing. This is, this is a great joy. Now, we're talking about public execution in a brutal sort of way, public way. How could we say that? And I want many of you to be encouraged because I've watched you respond in godly ways. In, in James chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, that's a great verse, and sometimes it, we, we quote it like a rah-rah verse, like get out there and keep going. But, but the, the truth of this verse is that we can count it all joy when we face trials of various kinds. Because the testing of faith leads to sort of an unwaveringness or a steadfastness. That's what the next verse says. Uh, that, uh, that grows into trust of Jesus. And God knows about everything going on in your life. God knows about the water in your basement and the equipment breakdowns. And he knows about the realities of relationships that are on the rocks. And he knows about the frustrations that you have at home and work and the coworkers who won't leave you alone. And he knows about all of these things. Some small, some big, some seem like the end of the world. Some seem like, can I just get through this day, please? But God knows about all of those things. 
And here's the good news. This is where you should be encouraged because God allowed those things into your life to produce in you something. He didn't allow those things into your life just for you to sit idly and just to say, well, I just got to endure this and get through to the next day. He allowed those things in your life to produce steadfastness in your faith so that you might not waver when bigger things come, that he will bring himself so that you won't waver when bigger things come that he himself will bring. Those bigger trials will come and they will come from God's hands so that you might glorify your father in heaven by trusting him and giving you bold, courageous, and clear evidence that this world does not hold any value for you. This is public execution. This is what it looks like. Instead of grumbling, being thankful that God has counted you worthy to, to suffer like Jesus did. Count it all joy because you're suffering so that God may produce in you something beautiful. Joy was set before Jesus. Hebrews 12 says this. Joy was set before Jesus so he endured the cross. Joy is set before you also. Endure the suffering knowing that God won't waste it, but bring about what he intends for you, in you. Here's a question. How do you know that God loves you? How do you know that God loves you? Let me give you the foolish answer. Fools say, because I have no problems. How many times have you slipped into that? How many times have I slipped in that mindset this week? How many times have you slipped in that mindset? Things are crumbling around me. Does God even love me? How do you know that God loves you? It's not because you don't have any problems. It's the exact opposite. The way to know that God loves you is because you face trials. When your life is simple and it's a cakewalk, when things are all hunky-dory, that doesn't tell you that God loves you. But when we are suffering, when we are enduring trials, that when we can be sure that God intends to use us for his purposes, we can be sure that God loves us because we're following Jesus into what he endured. Public execution. Not holding onto this world too tightly, but holding it loosely. Praising the name of the one who sent his son to die so that we might live, but in between so that we might die. Here's the encouragement to you this morning that many of you have endured many things recently. Many things that may not seem too big, but may seem small, but sometimes they seem really big and you don't even know what to think anymore. The encouragement to you is that God intends to produce in you steadfastness in your faith that will bring you to the final day, that will bring you, your faith to completion so that the gates of hell in Jamestown, North Dakota will tremble. And they are trembling now when you endure suffering and count it all joy. We want to grumble in those moments. 
We want to feel bad for ourselves. We want someone else to feel bad for us too. But friends, it stands as the evidence that God loves you and that he is fulfilling his purposes for you and this is how he's going to do it. Does the Father love Jesus? Of course. Does the cross mean that the Father doesn't love Jesus? Of course not. Because through the cross of Christ, God would glorify his name. He would glorify the Son. He would redeem a people and sit Jesus down at his right hand on David's throne to reign forever. God allows for us and makes us even to suffer like Jesus suffered. In Paul in Romans 8, 16, and 17, he says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are, are, are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You see the stop there? That we suffer provided that we suffer with him. We'd like to just drop that off or sort of forget about that or not emphasize that. The Spirit himself bears witness. We're God's children. Yes, and the way that we know it is provided that we suffer like Jesus suffered in order that we might be glorified like Jesus is glorified. The Holy Spirit sinks up with our inner man and reminds us that we are God's child and inheritor of eternal life. Provided we suffer, provided that we are where he is. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also, including on the cross. Trials in our life never mean that the Father doesn't love you or that he hates you or that he's forgotten you or that you don't mean anything to him. Trials in your life are the clearest indicator that God, that you can have, that God loves you with the same love with which he loves Jesus. Because those trials are the clearest indicator that you will be honored. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. That you will be honored by the Father. They're the clearest indication that you will become inheritor of eternal life. So first stop, public execution. The face of trials. Glorify your Father in heaven by trusting him, giving bold, confident, courageous, and clear evidence that this world does not hold value for you any longer. Again, Paul says it, Philippians 3, 7, and 8, but whatever is gain, I had counted for loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. First stop, public execution. Second stop, the grave. (laughs) Okay, it gets better. Here we go. Second stop, the grave. After his public execution, Jesus goes into the grave, and we do too. We do too. And the seed language that Jesus uses in 24 and 25 is very helpful for us here. The seed language, uh, the seed language shows us that death comes and then be- be- something beautiful, something flourishing, something fruitful comes out of it. But the grave in particular, we follow Jesus, and the Bible is clear about this, we follow Jesus into the grave for one thing, and that's to die to sin. To die to sin. 
Paul says it in Romans 6, 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So we go into the ground, and we die to sin. Now again, that might be physical death going into the ground, but it is something that happens upon our conversion. This public execution, dying to the things of the world, going into the grave, dying to sin. We must be where Jesus was in the grave. And you can't, the, the point of this, and the point of pointing out the stop of the grave, is that we can't follow Jesus and continue in sin. We cannot do that. Romans 6, 2. When I say I, you can't, it's not just like a finger what You can't do it. It's prohibitive. How can we who died to sin still live in it? The answer is we can't. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So we who are inclined towards sin must die to sin. And that's what the grave shows us. And where Jesus is, there his followers will be also. We must go into the grave and die to sin. Brief aside, this is the picture of baptism in the local church. This is why we as a church choose to baptize believers by immersion. So if you haven't been baptized as a believer of Jesus Christ, I would love to talk to you. Because baptism is not what removes the sin from us. The blood of Jesus does that. But we are called as believers to make a public display of our death, which baptism does. It does all of these things that we're talking about. But it shows that we are now dead to sin. When you go into that water, it's like going into the grave. and You're dead to sin and you're coming up. And then, like it says in Romans 6, 4, we were raised to walk in newness of life. But I'm ahead of myself now. So baptism shows us the death to sin that we, that we participate in. In following Jesus, the second stop is in the grave. We, fought, we die to sin, and we show everyone that we have died to sin by obeying Jesus, by being baptized, by immersion under the water as believers. So two, two stops so far. Public execution and the grave. Third stop, resurrection. Okay, Resurrection. Now, we spent uh, a handful of weeks talking about the implications of the resurrection for us as people. And so I'm not going to linger here very long. But this stop, stop number three, is also clarified in Romans 6 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the grave of the, uh, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So if the grave is death to sin, then the resurrection is walking in newness of life. So the purpose of following Jesus and being where he was in the grave is so that we could come out of it, so that our lives can bear witness to the reality that Jesus is alive. Our, as those who serve Christ and follow him, our lives must give witness that we are not walking as we once did, but we're walking now in the new life that Jesus has given to us. Dead to sin, alive to Christ. What does it mean to be alive to Christ? 
to walk as he walked in obedience to God the Father. So, die to sin, self, self-interest, self-indulgence. We die to all of these things that we want, like we die to the passions of the flesh. And then those, those lusts, those things that you have that inside of you that you just want to pursue and just whoever gets in my way, just go, we're going for it. But when you come to Jesus and you follow him into the grave, you die to those things and then you come up out wanting to serve and submit to your king. Fully alive, free to truly live. This is not restrictive. Christians so oftentimes talk about the commands of Christ as some like oppressive, uh, tyrannical, over-the-top, legalistic, blah, blah, blah. You get to live in the way that God designed you to now. This is what Jesus does for you. This is the resurrection of Jesus. We don't poo-poo sin. We say, no! Jesus bought us back from sin and death in order that we may be raised to walk in newness of life. Third stop, the resurrection. Fourth stop, ascension and glory. And here we are. We've arrived. So the, the death of Jesus uh, ultimately results in eternal life for us. And that's usually where we go. We go to sort of the end of it. The end of the matter. Ascension, glory. Final stop. Brian read it this morning from 1 Thessalonians 3 and verse 17. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. On the last day, when we are raised, we will also ascend to be with Christ, glorified for eternity. Just like it says at the end of verse 26. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Those who serve Jesus and follow him into death, burial, resurrection will be honored by the Father and that will happen for all of eternity. Uninterrupted. Uninterrupted for all of eternity. But friends, all of these steps are necessary for the one who serves King Jesus. The one who follows him must follow him everywhere he goes. There are no shortcuts in the Christian life. Public execution, the grave, the resurrection, ascension and glory. There where Jesus is, there will his servants be also. So as you go, ask the question, what about me? What about us? Eternal life and joy. And it's honor. This is a wonderful reality promised to all who by faith come to Jesus. But those who come to Jesus by faith also follow him into death, public execution, into his burial, into his resurrection. And it can be gruesome and it can be brutal. And friends, it is uncomfortable. But there is no greater evidence given to you than to be counted worthy to suffer as Jesus suffered, that you are, belong to God and that one day you will be glorified with him. We must be aware that labeling ourselves and saying, I'm a follower of Jesus, that we must go everywhere he goes. Not to the places that sound good or feel nice, 
but everywhere he goes. I think that we can say what Jesus says in verse 27. He says, for this purpose I have come to this hour. When you, when you look at suffering, when you look at trials, when there are difficulties that are staring you down, you can say along with Jesus, for this purpose I have come to this hour, that God might produce in me the things that he desires to produce in me. Father, glorify your name in this suffering. We desire to serve our King, and so we must follow him wherever he goes. Count it all joy that you've been counted worthy to suffer with and serve King Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that it offers us great encouragement in our suffering, in the trials that we face. That it tells us that it is clear evidence that you love us and that you have in fact called us according to your purposes in order that you might fulfill in us what you desire. That you might make us steadfast and bring us to maturity. In order that we might reflect to the world around us who you are. God, would we not slip into the mindset that we know it or that we've got it down or that the things of this world carry any weight for us. God, would you now spark in us a desire to serve you and follow you everywhere you go as we go from this place. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.